0: Data storytellers, this is Laszlo, and today on the show I have with me Josh Lecur. And Josh is the executive director of strategic analytics over at Comcast. He's been there for a good couple of years now. And today we're going to have a deep dive into some of the hottest data topics today. So, first of all, Josh, welcome on the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. So
0: Josh, you work at Comcast High Profile Organization. Uh, you and I had a great conversation a couple of months ago uh, about your role and what you guys are working on. And today I will be mainly interested in your professional journey and what do you see as the key risks and opportunities in the industry and maybe some of your best practices mm-hmm. in navigating organizational change. Now, most people who listen to this will not be familiar with you. So can you just give a, a short introduction into how did you end up in this role? And first of mm-hmm. all, how did you enter enter the world of data analytics?
1: Yeah, um, it's kind of a funny story. So my, my academic background is like theoretical mathematics, and I was actually in graduate school working on my PhD. Um, I was not planning to go into corporate America, go into analytics, go into any of that. I didn't even know what that word meant at the time, right? I was planning to get, um, you know, become a college professor working on like algebraic topology and stuff. Um, kind of weird, weird, you know, change of fate there. 2008, as we all remember, the financial crisis hit. And I lost my funding, right, for my PhD program. I, I said to myself, "Why? Well, I, I better get a real job. Um, so I went and got a master's instead in mathematics, closed it out. And honestly, I kind of threw my hat out there. I applied to anything that had math out in the keywords. You know, I'm coming out of pure academia. I'm coming out of, you know, I, I'm not really on top of the business world looks like any of that. Um, and I applied to a lot of different places. And it's funny, I actually got a call back from, from Deloitte Consulting back when they opened up their federal practice in Washington, D.C. And at the time, I didn't know who that was. I had no idea who Deloitte was. I just, I rolled up to their big tower they had downtown. And I was like, oh, these, these guys seem real. Um, and obviously things went well. And I was hired into them. That was my first job out of, out of graduate school. And at the time, too, it's kind of, it's a weird kind of synergy and coincidence. I feel like my career has evolved as analytics and data as a profession has really matured. Right, So I started Deloitte. And, you know, at the time, it was a big, big analytics and data. It was like a big, hot new thing, but no one quite knew what it meant, right? Um, so, you know, the idea of using data to make, make decisions, we would talk about, we'd figure out, but even when people really wanted to, no one knew what that looked like or how to go about that. Um, I was fortunate enough that I had some basic SQL skills, So they had me working on a lot of data assets, and the math started applying it. But we really started to see the unlocking of potential in things like, you know, how do we turn around the post office, postal service from being in the black or being the red um, and you being able to kind of use mathematics and things like that to quantify like the organizational principles and things like that, which was new, right? Like consulting had a lot of practice in making charts, but actual kind of algorithm led decisioning was very very new especially in federal government client space. Um, so again learned a lot there again especially coming somebody coming out of peer academia, no business background. Um, learned how to, really talk to people, how to talk about data, how to kind of believe in making those connections um, and like kind of figuring out how important the qualitative side is of things, not just the quantitative side, right? Mm-hmm. So I was there for a couple of years. Um, at one point, I think anybody who started their c- career consulting can probably relate to this. Uh, one of my managers left for GlaxoSmith's Plan up here in Philadelphia and his pitch to me was, how about you work Half as many hours as you do, you know, from eighty down to forty, uh, and probably make a bit more money and kind of have a bit more freedom, to be able to stay with something. So he recruited me over to Blackwell Smith client where I actually stood up their analytics and data program for the global audit insurance program. Again, very similar transformation here too. Very large corporation, um, GSK, one of the biggest pharma companies in the world. Not mature in data, not mature in analytics. They knew what they wanted, or they knew what it was supposed to do. And they did not know what it looked like. Again, for me, or still pretty early on, early on in my career, maybe about two years in. Um, it was a big learning for me to kind of figure out, like, I knew the math, I didn't know the area, didn't know the industry, and kind of applying those consulting principles to work out what do they actually want to do, right? Um, this is a great story for me personally, because ultimately, I did well enough, we still have the program, they actually wanted to promote me, I feel like I failed. You know, we built reporting, we built tools, I could not get people to use right? It, it's a point where it's like, you seem like you're going through the motions, you're staying stuff up and insights were derived, but you were never able to get to that big promises, right? As mm-hmm. um, a mixture of that is immaturity of the data assets in the company, but also immaturity in myself, immaturity in, you know, my ability as, again, really, very early in my career to run a standard program, and can architect that out. of mm-hmm. um, learnings there as well, but also it's very interesting to see like, okay, how do giant corporations make that evolution? We're talking back in the day, global audits, to do audit analytics, we'd be pulling the accounts ledger from like 25, 30 year old ERP systems that <laughs> are green screen, downloading them into like a, uh, like a uh, CSV printable and then trans- transforming on something else, right? The sheer immaturity of the data assets and infrastructure, you, know, you start to recognize how much it slows you down as well as with the gap in institutional knowledge and executive leadership to know how to, like, make that transition, make that investment, right? At the time, I was definitely not the guy to have that conversation, you know? Mm. Um, But again, same thing. I'm growing my career as data and analytics is growing as an industry. Um, From there, I moved to a local Philadelphia startup called Cobite Solutions, which is a machine learning startup, I'm um, for a year and a half. Interesting proposal here, right? This is kind of early in the days of ensemble modeling getting picked up. Um, the idea was to build a solution around ensemble modeling, right, um, and kind of build that and automate a lot of that process. Did pretty well with we some good client space, including Comcast and a lot of local healthcare um, organizations. Um, near the end of that, actually, they ended up getting acquired by PTC to do Internet of Things. Analytics, data science, they're still a part of that. Um, so, kind of sure where it ended up, right? Because around – we're talking about around 2015 now or so, 2014, 2015, where uh, H2O started getting really big, Azure ML started getting really big. So, the opportunity for the kind of plug-and-play automated machine learning applications started getting really limited, but the ability to integrate with bigger systems started to get much more of an opportunity, right? So, they went over to PTC. At the same time, though, I think it was a great acquisition. You know, at the time, I think was number four biggest acquisition in Philadelphia tech history. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a great transition for those guys. I personally did not want to go with them. Um, at the time, I think Comcast recruited me as well, and I came over to Comcast. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really where I kind of start hitting my stride and getting that acceleration and, and really things start to gel, right? Mm-hmm. Comcast back in 2015, also still not pretty far in their data journey either, right? I, would, I remember hearing from an executive time about, isn't analytics just, you know, confirming what executives want to do anyways? which is a little disheartening mm. at the time, right? But like, you know, now seven years later, it's exact opposite, of course, which is great. But <laughs> the same thing though, right? I joined um, a very new organization at Comcast called EBI, probably about, I think they're only about a year old. And it was the first centralized data organization for the company. Um, the ideal being is that this is where the center of excellence is going to be for analytics, for the science, for the architecture, et cetera. Um, and, you know, it's the first time in my career I've actually been surrounded by people who did my job. You know, at Deloitte again, I started out. We had some analytics people. They were more survey statisticians or data engineers, and that multi-faceted, well-rounded individual that makes a good analyst. There weren't a lot of those, right? And so I had nobody to learn from. GSK, I was the only data person in my department. Nobody to learn from. Cold Light, um, similar thing. A lot of smart ML engineers, not a lot of pure kind of data scientists or advanced analysts, right? Now come to comcast i'm embedded in an organization um an analytics organization with people who are you know better at this than me i have leaders probably for the first time i had a boss and a leader who had done my job before in mm-hmm. some fashion right um and i had peers who were strong in different areas of different ways but still the same level of work um and over those past seven years i've been here right? We've been able to engage with each other, learn off each other, keep getting better and better, grow ourselves, grow the organization, grow the organization's impact on the company, and transform the company culture to be more and more data-driven. You know, so now we've gone from, like I said, seven years ago, analytics and data just being there to confirm a choice is already made, to embedding testing, experimentation, and modeling as drivers for solutions in the organization um, and in the company. And part of my role in Comcast been to do that specifically in the customer experience space so i started out as a high level individual contributor there um again in cx and over time kind of you know i've grown as the as the department has grown became a team lead became a director and ultimately now i run the entire customer analytics and care analytics um, Orton's analytics organization for EBI, as well as have a management role in terms of prioritization and road mapping for other data solutions as well. So, you know, it's been a long journey, right? But I will say, I think the thing that kind of most supercharged me in that growth was being an environment where I had people to learn from, right? People who were better at my job than me, right? Not that I'm the best at it, but again, when you're by yourself, you kind of default the best. Um, here, though, that was absolutely not the case. It was the best thing that could have happened to me. Hmm. What were those most
0: important things that you actually learned? Because when think, people think about data analytics, uh, nine people out of 10 would think, okay, you had to learn algorithms. You had to sure. upskill yourself in yeah. like t- technological know-how. You needed to adopt whatever like solutions and understand yeah. how to code, which I understand that this has its place. But when you say that the most important thing for you was to yeah. learn, what yeah. were the, what were those things that you learned that actually turbocharged your career?
1: I mean, so you, you're right. The, the technical stuff is critical. It's important. It's foundational. It's almost just assumed. This is a technical role. This is a technical profession, right? You have to keep on that. Um, but the stuff that really kind of led to my success, I mean, again, part of it was just having people to give you different opinions, people to partner with and work off of and have that partnership. But I'd the kind of qualitative, like, social skills more than anything else. You know, the advice I got at one point in my career about public speaking and running meetings and engaging with people and presenting, like... Up until half my career, I'm nervous. I'm a math guy, right? I'm a math nerd. I don't like talking in front of people. I would memorize every kind of presentation, word for word. I like got six minute long presentation all in my head. And I naturally talk fast. But when you're doing that, you talk even faster. Um, and then at a later time, he sat me down. He said, listen, I see what you're doing, right? I see you're prepping for this. and You're so stressed out. and You're trying to be prepared. But you have to remember, this is not a test. These people want to hear from you. They're happy to hear from you. They're excited from hear from you. They just want you to come and share what you know and talk, right? Don't tackle this as a speech or, or some kind of exam. Tackle up the conversation. Be comfortable, right? Because, again, they're not, they're not judging you, right? They're excited to hear from you, and they want you to be there. And that was night and day, right? That's a night and day piece of advice of, like, oh, This is how you engage with other people professionally. This is how you engage with senior people professionally, right? And that was like a bedrock foundational change for me, which led to my having been much more comfortable talking to folks, being much more comfortable engaging with folks, which in turn, right, again, this doesn't sound like an analytics thing. But, you know, one of the critical things for data is you can do all the fancy work, but if you can't talk about it, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Right? If you can't engage with people while you're doing it or, or make it sound like you have confidence in the solution, confidence in the answer, be able to explain it in such a way where it's natural and you kind of have to jump to it without being prepared, you're not going to have be successful. Right? So the other part of not just being a good analyst and core like, skills operator, but being able to engage with that and talk about it and kind of be a thought influencer beyond just the numbers on the slide, that's critical. Right. It's how to be a leader. It's how to be a solid kind of professional in the ways beyond your core skill set, which, again, is very common for a bunch of roles across any job. But for us, for anything, I think for a lot of people come to our profession as well. It's an unnatural push. Right. And it's something where it's a skill you have to kind of develop and build on just like any other skill.
0: Hmm, Absolutely. It's interesting that you mentioned that okay i need it you can build all these amazing solutions but if you can't talk about it if you can't yeah. sell it then it will never amount to anything it won't have an impact so yeah. i always think about you guys as having this kind of binary role in in the sense that you need to be a builder and an architect and that's a very specific yeah. mindset that's a very specific skill set as well that you need to like uh, have the vision have the the aptitude and the capacity to build and engineer and all of that stuff. And then on the other hand, that you have something on the polar opposite end of the scale when you need to be an influencer. So as opposed to be a builder and an architect, you now need to be almost like an influencer. In in, in a way, you need to be a relationship builder and you need to sell, sell these ideas. Even if you look at our logo, the two sides of the brain. You have the logical, the the, the left brain, which thinks in numbers and, and the data points and it's very logical. And then you have the right brain, which is more about the hot cognitive stuff, relationship building, potential, uh, 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 human, human inspiration, creativity, and then bringing these together. This is the, the, this is where we see the exceptional people rise above the crowd. Now, if we focus on that second element, because again, being architects and being builders Mm -hmm. critically as you said, it's almost assumed and foundational. Yeah. Now, the huge opportunity that we've seen is in actually upskilling yourself and improving the, yeah. the, the, the ride brain in a way. So if we take a step back and you look at uh, uh, Josh, let's say 10, 15 years ago, and you mm. analyze that guy's communication and how he, <laughs> he carries himself and, and, and how he engages with senior stakeholders. And today, how would you describe that gap? Where would you really pinpoint the main improvements?
1: I mean, man, I'm not even the same guy anymore, right? Like it's, it's funny where, and this is something that I I, it's funny. I learned this stuff through working and through kind of like seeing what worked and did not work. So it's kind of very experimental, but yeah, 15 years ago, you know, I, I was quiet. I was shy. I didn't have a lot of confidence. I was, you know, my, my professional dream was just to get in the back of the room and like grind through serums all day, we'd be left alone. Um, And now here I am, I'm I'm a very visible, very social, kind of very engaging kind of thought leader in a fortune 50 company, right. With a very large organization underneath me. Um, Like it is, it's almost not the same person, right. And it's, it's something where that was a personal transformation. I had to go through myself and, you know, this is beyond work, right. This is kind of building your bedrock through who you are, but Part of that too was the shock Most shocking thing to me was I got into Deloitte and I was like, Oh, I'm good at this. I'm not just good at the math. I'm good at like, like people are listening to me. You're 24, 25 years old. And my clients were federal. So like mostly department of defense and Intel, I'm walking into a room of like generals and admirals, and these big guys who you know do major military stuff. And, and I'm sitting there talking about numbers on the slide and they're like, okay, tell me more, tell me more. That's really smart. I'm like, and it, it blew my mind. Right? Like, Oh, this stuff I'm bringing has value. And and I'm they need me to bring it to them. And the recognition that, like, you know, you have a place in this world, you have a place in this organization. Because again, you know, remember, I was not planning on being a corporate guy, I was not planning on going into business, something I don't my family's not coming from a lot of like I don't come from a my family military growing up. You know, what I mean, we don't, this is not the world I come from, right? Um, and the recognition that this is a place where I can not just belong, but success ex- 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 uh, succeed was really kind of eye-opening and also you know a lot of firm coaching and sponsorship and mentoring from people who believed in me right i had senior leaders and organizational folks who looked at me and knew me saw me work and i i respected the hell out of them right these are the people who are leading major engagements at you know the, at giant consulting company they sat me down and said you're you have this ability to speak to folks the ability to get your message across you know, which is good, right? Any of the skills together, you need to build on that. And that kind of encouragement and, and mentoring and folks believing in me, like, that's what tipped the scales, right? If it was just me on my own, I don't think I could have got there. But, you know, having these leaders and having these people who kind of invested, that really set me going. So I think, you know, advice I give for a lot of folks is, you know, make sure you reach out, make sure you engage with leadership, make sure you have folks who believe in you, because They're not just going to teach you, but they're going to give you the confidence and the momentum to keep building on that, kind of to let you know, like, it's important and it's meaningful and it's something you have to really drill on and you will, like, really start flying what you've got built up. Hmm.
0: So talk about this transformation. And there's a natural progression, of course, in everyone's career, but... uh... I mean, fewer people actually make it to the top. And when I say to the top, and you actually transition into a management role, you become kind of in a a leadership position. Uh, uh, Few people actually actually make that. Now, I imagine that you had to break through a lot of these, uh, uh, a lot of these barriers, a lot of these resistances. Yeah. How 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 do you observe your transformation? as a leader, what was that, that main thing that galvanized you, that enabled you? We already talked about communication and your, your yeah. ability to speak into something that's hard to understand, how to take on board and you gain that confidence. But then what other qualities did you observe from others that you, that, that you adopted that enabled you to actually become a leader?
1: I mean, so I would say one of the things, I kind of go both ways, right? How to become a leader. Why do you want to become a leader? How do you motivate you to become a leader? First of all, be sure you know why you want to be a leader. Right? If you want to be a leader, just be a leader because I want to have people work for me. That's that's not the good reason to be a leader, right? You want to be a leader because you want to make things happen. And you want to make things happen at a scale larger than you can make happen for yourself, right? Like that is, you have to have a goal in the bigger picture. Like why should you have more authority? Why should you have more responsibility? It's because you have to believe in what you're doing. You have to kind of have that pushing behind you. And again, that's something I saw from other leaders who were successful as well, right? They cared. They believed. Um for me, though, the kind of stuff where I, stuff I had to learn to make that transition where it made it difficult for me, um, and there's the basic stuff, right? Time management, program management, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to go through that, I would say, though, one of the big things, too, though, is how do you partner with others, right? How do you fit in the ecosystem or the kind of village you are a part of are you an elbows out, kind of get your way, fight your way in the room type person, or are you a collaborative partnering type person? And while the first may be good in the short term, get what you want tomorrow, no one's going to work, want to work with you next week, right? And to be able to kind of get the buy-in and be an effective leader and get the buy-in to become that leader from your own leadership, you have to have folks who are your champions. You have to have folks who say they want to work with you, willing to engage with you. Because not only will they be, you know, your sponsors and a chorus of voices in the room to support your growth, but they're also who are going to make you successful in the future, right? That's, that's something I had to learn. You know, again, I'm coming from a world where I'm mm-hmm. the only guy, and I would just say this stuff, people would believe me because I'm the only guy who knew what I was talking about, to a bigger organization where, you know, I'm not the default smartest guy in the room. Right. Like how do you get people in on your side? And when I started Comcast, you know, I'm kind of sad to say I was pretty aggressive. I was very elbows out and slowed me down. Right. i get a lot of coaching and not just the coaching, the recognition that, oh, wait, I take a step back and I see people are more collaborative and they're being more successful, not just in their own career journey, but also the things they're working on. Right. They have more adoption and lift. Um, that was key right? That was critical is to like, come up and make that and pull back and like, just be less intense about it all. Right. Mm. Um, so I think that was a huge part of kind of being successful is making sure you have a network of people who you're able to work with who believe in you. Um, but also I think I, I would double, I would double down on that intensity part of be less intense. Mm. Right. Like, like take a step back. Cause the other thing about leadership too is you don't you can't be so invested engaged in every little project, every little thing you work on. First of all, you start running multiple things, right? And they're all not going to succeed, but also, you know, it's hard to keep the bigger picture in mind. It's hard to be strategic. It's hard to look in the future if you're sitting there holding tightly to every little thing every time. And that's something I had to let go of. I had to pull back from to let things kind of run independently, especially as I got staff of my own, right, to let them manage things and own things to free yourself up, to kind of have a more measured pace um, and measured eye on those, but also keep your eye on the bigger strategic picture. So, you know, is that be able to balance out and look at what's right for the organization, right for the overall goals and not what's right for each individual tiny project. That was also a big transition to kind of be an effective leader as well.
0: Hmm. So what you're actually getting at is that when you came in first, you were observed and seen by the organization in a certain way that actually slowed you down. And then you need to almost like manage that perception by reorganizing the qualities that you embody and present. And now you were better received. Now we can maybe like go one level higher here uh, because what we've seen is that there is a data analytics perception problem in organizations. What does that mean? Is that even when people say that, yeah, we want to be more data driven, (laughs) they don't have a true image A true vision of what data analytics is. So uh, in your uh, experience, what were those main misconceptions that you had to battle and reconcile in order to data analytics to be seen as, as it, it really is, as something yeah. that will open the right doors, that the people were not expecting the wrong things and they, would, they will actually uh, see data analytics as something that, that can deliver immense value and something that you can actually build and give them that they will adopt.
1: Yeah, I mean, I actually talk about a specific kind of area where we're still living in right now and that's that evolution from testing to experimentation. Right? When I started at Comcast, we did not do a lot of testing at all. We just kind of launched stuff, right? And we had, took multiple years to get the conversation going where we now firmly believe when you launch a new program or process, you have to test, a controlled test, right? You, hold, you have a holdout, have a few different recipes, see how they work out, optimize based off of that. Even that is still a challenge because a lot of folks are like, well, why can't I just look at what changed year over year, months over months? Right? Well, you can't, you have biases, you have seasonal influences, you don't know what happened through there. Um, and also why make the time to take the investment? Hey, I got to get this out there. I have to, I have to make sure I hit our numbers. We're going to launch to a full base. I don't want to take a month, do a holdout, not hit everybody. I want to make the goodness happen now. Right? That first evolution was convincing folks, Hey, you don't actually know that goodness is real. You're assuming, that this projection you based off of, based on whatever, is gonna work. You send it out to all 30 million subscribers, right? Um, you don't actually know. And what this does is it gives you insurance that if it doesn't work out, if your KPIs don't transfer, you expect it to, you know what the actual impact was, right? Um, if, for example, we have a you know, global pan- pan- pandemic hit and a falling economic crisis, and your KPI for your initiative drops down, you leave something, something to fall back on and say, hey, actually, we're doing good versus the baseline We actually did this experiment and test, right? Um, that was an evolution. That was a journey to get people on board for that. And you kind of had to show them, right? You had to almost let them fail a few times and show that, hey, it's not working the way you saw it's going to work out because you're not set up the right way. You're not tested out. After a few rounds of those and waving the wings and saying, hey, this is how you could have done it instead, and having a few successful tests and showing the value of testing, you have a good foundation, you could buy, buy in now. And now we do testing almost everything we launch, right? We have control groups, we have holdouts, and we're able to measure kind of incremental KPIs versus what that was. Um, so that's where we're at, right? The, the evolution we're going through right now is going from there to experimentation, right? Instead of putting a lot of effort to one large test, we launch something. Why don't we put a less effort into smaller launches, multiple smaller launches that are able to fail if they need to change, evolve, fail, change, evolve, right? Continuously iterate and optimize um, in such a way where you're not just investing in one do or do not big solution, you're having a iterative, adaptable, series of solutions that evolve on each other continue optimizing smarter and smarter, that leads to like the ML-driven um, solution, that leads to one-to-one marketing, things like that. That enables all these opportunities where we're not just talking about affirming, confirming that your project worked. The experimentation is in and of itself part of the solution, right? It is a self-training, self-learning, optimizing of whatever you're putting out there. Um, That's an opportunity, though. That's an opportunity the company is still in the process of learning how to embrace. It's something where we're still trying to figure out, like, okay, people get it. They know what it is. They understand what the value is. But now we're at the point now where it's like, you didn't get to you should do it and get to why you should do it. But then the question starts to become, how do you do it? right? And how do you convince executive leadership and folks like that to invest in the necessary platforms, necessary change in processes? Um, that's the big struggle, right? Is, okay, now if you people get bought in the dream, how do you get them to really buy into the reality of making that actually happen? So, you know, those are the kind of struggles you get through to kind of make data and analytics get adopted. The The, you know, we've, the buzzwords and speeches and then like, you know, change industry overnight type stuff. Okay. You're bought into that. The real after real work though, is the patience and rigor to both wait for results, wait for, you know, doing things the right way. Wait, wait for, and believe in the value of methodology as well as investing the platforms to make it easier and easier and more rapid.
0: Hmm. So what's, very interesting to me is that if we look at data analytics as a function in the company that's now everyone's on that train there's a trend around it it's almost becoming indispensable because of the general digital transformation that has been going on and it doesn't seem to be slowing down at all at the same time if you look at other functions like procurement or supply chain or even something like marketing, which is rapidly evolving as well, yeah. uh, they, those functions don't really have to sell themselves. Those functions <laughs> don't really have to like go to senior leadership and tell them that, hey, you need to invest in your supply chain or yeah. that you need to uh, take care of your procurement or even again, marketing. Everyone knows marketing. At the same time, with data analytics, there is this, there's this uh, almost like weird position that you guys are in that you're almost like a service company within the company. Yeah, so you, yeah. you, you are an entrepreneur with every single responsibility that the entrepreneur has. It's like, look, I have a good solution, I know it's good for you. Now, I get that there's a general interest because I'm yeah. here, we have a function, but I still need to communicate with you. I still need to brand yeah. myself. I still need to p- position myself. And I need to work with you as my client to yeah. make sure that I'm building the right solution for the right person yep. at the right time to deliver an amazing customer experience yep. with huge value so that we can grow this relationship together. So uh, how do you see yourself? How How, how is your relationship with the ownership, do you see yourself as a CEO of, of, of your function? Uh, uh, is it something that you apply uh, consciously? Like how, how do you see your data analytics function in the business and the relationship between you and your client?
1: Yeah, I mean, I personally, I'm you know, former consultant here, but like I, I see it as internal consulting, right? I talk about biz dev. I go out there, find new partners, find new work to do, find new projects. Cause you know, I don't support one stakeholder. I support stakeholders all across the company in different business units. Um, but we're not dedicated to anybody really. So we're always out there kind of hunting for work, trying to find, not that we don't have stuff to do. We've got gigantic backlogs, but we're also looking for good work, right? We're looking for good projects. We're not looking for ad hoc analytics. We pull down numbers. We're looking for industry company changing questions to answer. Um, It's the same thing. It's that hat of how do you become a strategic advisor? I don't want to just be, you know, it's funny you mentioned about the place of legal and procurement organization. I think we are there now. We are there, right? Um, We're not something where we we have to justify our existence. We are embedded part of this company. That was not always the case. That was not always true. We work our way up to that. Um, But now that we're there, though, again, you don't want to, like, we got there by taking the consulting mentality in place, but also not the kind of, like, hungry at all costs mentality right we always position ourselves we're not going to be the team that's sitting there and do data pools we're not teams going to sit there and do weather reporting we're the team to be strategic advisors we're the team to sit there to be you know we're going to tell you some stuff you don't want to hear and that was hard and especially when we were not a fully kind of an accepted part of the company um a bedrock part of the company because at the time, you know, you don't know if a year from now, the, the CEO of Comcast may decide to reorg our entire organization back in the rest of the business, right? We don't know that. At the same time we're going about, we're talking to senior leaders, they say, hey, I need you to pull A, B, C, D, E numbers and I'm gonna plug them into a spreadsheet and make my case. And we always said, no, if you want to do an analytic driven solution here, we'll do it. We'll do the analysis. We'll measure it out with the caveat though, we're going to do it the right way. We're going to apply rigor to it. We're going to apply, you know, statistical best practices. Um, and we're going to tell you if it doesn't work, you know, and that was risky, right? And for a lot of time early on, business partners weren't always happy to work with us because they got tired of us saying no. They got tired of us not telling them they wanted to hear. But over time, though, us sticking to it, we built that reputation. When, when they did engage, and we were right. We were right. and We helped the business avoid a major bad decision. Like we were right, you know, or we helped identify an opportunity they didn't know about Like this builds trust over time. We had to build that trust. We had to build that engagement through the point now where it's no longer kind of risky and they know who we are and trust us for that. Um, We have that firm partnership. But again, that mentality still has to be there, right? We have to continue to look for that level of work, continue to find places where rigor will provide value, our our ability to kind of hit the bigger questions, look at them from a higher level, especially cross company, not just what's good for that one business unit. Right, because we support everybody. Um, that's where we continue to provide that value. That's where we continue to come in and say, "This is something you cannot do yourself, by definition, almost." Um, so again, it's that it's that mentality of we're not data monkeys, right? We're not people sitting here to pull stuff down. We are strategic advisors that use data to make help you make better decisions. Mm,
0: got it. So when you say that you are an internal consultant. Um like a hundred percent, I I can absolutely see that. Do you think that there's still like an added layer of, I also have to build things? Because let's say when a consultant comes in, it- they do what it, what it says on the label. I'm gonna consult you. You have whatever yeah. you have, and I'm gonna be just purely an advisor. I get that you are shining a light on that particular aspect that should be emphasized yeah. and be doubled down on. But uh, just because of my follow up question, uh, do you still see that uh, this kind of responsibility to be at the same time the the, the builder of solutions, or is it more like I'm just g- trying to get more visibility? Yeah, yeah, on no, how, no, how it's, a good,
1: it's a good question. I mean, the consulting advice we give, like those are we're building analytics, right? We're building the insights. We're building, and they're mostly PowerPoints where we talk about things here, right? We're building those. That's what we deliver. But that is the consulting, right? That is the insights. That is the advice. Sometimes the analytics says, all right, what we should do here is go build a solution, right? Mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. may even get to the point where we prototype said solution now. Like I think of, um, you know, we're working on something right now where we're segmenting a population for like routing between our chat and our calls, right? Um, that's ultimately a pure data science modeling solution. We need to go build that. We didn't know that was the answer was. The original answer was, hey, what is the difference in KPIs between chat and calls? Right? That was the initial question, right? Is this, are, how different are they? Normalize that the population, we want to know apples to apples. What is the real material difference here? And then what should we do about that, right? And that was an open-ended question. It's like, what do you do, right? So after the initial round analysis, like, yeah, you can normalize them out, the gaps here to here. Um, we probably should shift some from population A to population B. And here's how we should do that though. We should do that based off of the propensity of that customer to be, you know, retained more likely in either one of those channels, right? That was, what, that was, the, uh, that was the analytics. So we should do that. And we edged up to, by the way, we knocked out a real cheap, easy model in place right here, which, which can you know, um, segment out the base versus high and low risk based on the channel. You should, we should go do this. That was the advice. That was the insight. Business says, yeah, we should definitely go do that. The actual development of that solution we're will kick out to our actual data science team. And they're going to build that for real and implement it. And we're moving on. We'll stay engaged to make sure that kind of it meets the requirements and meets what we want to do. Um, but now we're off to the next question now, though, right? We're off to the next thing
0: okay now this is really cool because that's exactly what i wanted to k- kind of uncover through my question because it's the it's it's the right way of thinking because you're almost like putting the pressure on yourself to always think about what the client needs so instead yeah. of falling into the pitfall of let me build shiny tools i'm here to build the the, the asset that i'm uh, bringing yeah. here is that i will build that technology that almost like like uh, uh alleviate some of that pressure of no, 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 you gotta focus on your client and what they need and even yeah. push through their ignorance about what they need because they might think that, oh, what do we need? I guess AI <laughs> solutions that's what we need, oh, but that's yeah. not what they need.
1: I mean, I've got a good example of that too. It's like I remember a few years ago, we were trying to figure out a way to segment our customer base based off of negative customer experiences. And we were like, Oh, yeah, it's gotta be a big ML data science thing, you gotta do all this like unsupervised learning and all this stuff, and very, very really complicated solution. The science team built and it it worked well, right? The scores and stuff work, you know, it kind of made sense. We brought back the business. Business was like, I don't know what this is. I don't know how it works. You gave me a number for a customer or a box and like, I don't know why that is. I don't because I can't action on this. It's just bad. I don't know why they're in that box. And it it just fell forward. And we sat there and looked at it like, well, what were we supposed to do here? And We came back, we saw about for a while. And it's like, we just need to bucket people based off of whether or not something bad happened. Like, and we know what the bad stuff is. We know it's negative experiences. And we, we also need to know, have they tried to fix it, right? Is it a new thing or a reoccurring thing? And are they, are they like normal, right? So we sat there at a the whiteboard one time and drew a bunch of boxes. It was like, have you had a bad thing? Yes or no? Have you called us? Yes or no? Um, is it one thing or multiple things? Okay, that's the segmentation. It's all business rules but, uh, based, right? But we only got there because we were so convinced it had to be a big, shiny ML solution, right? Ultimately, that was the wrong thing because that new solution, which was business rules-based, that got adopted. That got rapidly adopted. The agents can look at that now. They know, hey, this customer's in this box. They've had three bad things go wrong. Those three bad things were A, B, C, and D. And they've been going through this for the past months. And we know they need to be prioritized, right? Like it clicks. And it's something where, you know, go back to base principles, go ba- back to like, as you said, what do our partners actually need? They need something that can tell us whether or not customer's customer is in trouble and why and how long that's been going on and if they've tried to solve it before. That's what they asked us to do, right? And, you know, instead we ultimately jumped to throwing a bunch of stuff into a model and see what's coming out and it, it just didn't connect, right? Um, so, you know, there's, there's a time and a place for modeling, a time and a place for AI solutions, and sometimes there's a time and a place just for like getting something out there, right? Like, and ultimately, again, where we have to come in is figure out, be that translator between the developers and the pure data scientists and the business to figure out just what do we need to do, right? And that's, that's that level of the solution you get into.
0: Hmm. This is so cool because basically uh, what you're doing, and I'm always connecting this with yeah. what an entrepreneur has to do because we are entrepreneurs. I think through yeah. that lens, it's just fascinating to me to kind of uncover those connections because what you're doing here is that on the front end, uh, you are communicating with your customers so to to really build those uh, those alliances to to get that sponsorship to do that service for the customer that will create the need and it will give you the mandate to actually go away and now take care of the, your capability and then that that that's the other aspect of it that, that I have a capability to manage so maybe on the other side of leadership because in a way you are a leader for your client you are helping them, you're leading that relationship, but at the same time, you've got to be a leader for your team to manage your capability. So how did that, because I imagine that as as, uh, your role evolved and you gained more and more responsibility, I imagine that you had to also put more emphasis and pay more attention to management. So uh, dealing with personnel, how did that change over the years for you? And maybe you can even talk about the market in general, because I guess like- 10 or so years is a long time in the 21st century, especially in data. <laughs> how did that change? The, the, the challenges about bringing on the right people who have data uh, uh, education, who yeah. can work with data, but at the same time, they can do meaningful business work. You can talk to folks, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. How, how did that change over the years?
1: I mean, it's, it's tough, right? Now, I will say the only reason our organization is so successful is because we have very good people, right? Our staff are just amazing. And our staff, like... You know, they are they are, we hire them to be well-rounded. We hire them, of course, the quantitative background, but also to be, you know, interested in the business, curious in the business, engaged in the business, and also be able to kind of talk about that and want to get through it. And I will say the biggest differentiator I've found that what makes somebody successful in an organization, staff bring in that people we've hired, is that passion, is that curiosity, right? Is that actually wanting to do the job? You know, you can you can be totally good at talking to folks, really good at the math part, if you don't care about solving problems. Like, you're not going to have that motivation to keep going, right? But also, I think as well, that critical mass, which worked for me growing with people around me, we have a community of analysts all kind of bounce off and learn off of each other, um, which has made it a very solid place where they, kind of, they, they, it helps keep them engaged and helps them kind of push forward and grow. Um, in terms of kind of change over the years, like I said, you know, the definition of analytics and what that means has evolved so much in the past decade. Of course, the definition of analysts has evolved as well. And I think we all know that analysts, data scientists, whatever, these are very fuzzy job titles based on the company you're in, the department you're in, your educational background, they all kind of blur into each other, right? Um, you know, so it's 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 a weird thing where you have a lot of people it's both very hard to hire people and there's too many candidates. So you got a lot of people put analytics and science on their resume, but, you know, really they may be more business analysts, right? And they have no SQL background, no data background, or they may be more like data engineers. They can write queries and build stuff like that or report developers, right? Where they're building dashboards, you know, but all of them are kind of tagging themselves the exact same way. So, you know, it's, I feel like the profession is starting to collapse down to – it's starting to solidify back out, right? It's starting to kind of – starting to get walls between, okay, a data scientist versus an analytics professional versus an engineer. These walls are starting to get built out. Um, and I think ultimately we're going to end up is, you know, data scientists and analysts probably on continual, like data scientist being much more technically driven but still needing the social skill, saying like it's 70-30, whereas the analyst is probably 30-70 right? Mm-hmm. Where the, the data skills are important or critical, but the qualitative part, the, the business engagement, business knowledge is probably more so, right? And they're on that spectrum. Um, but when you find people, that's the people you have to look for are those who hit all of those, right? Hit all, hit all three of those kind of areas. Um, and it's tough. It's there's not a lot of folks out there coming out of that, right? There's very few programs that really prepare you for that. Um, there's very few jobs other than one just exactly like this prepares you for it. So you know it's a hard thing. You're constantly looking for folks, but when you do find them though, it's just rock stars, right? These rock stars get in a room together and they all help each other grow.
0: Hmm. So this poses an interesting question uh about how data analysts, business analysts, data scientists can future-proof their career. Because there is this trend uh, which might be valid, might not be valid, but I know that this is a legitimate fear or if not a fear a concern. Uh, in the data science community, that a lot of these jobs, even though data science is called the sexiest job of the 21st century, that a lot of it will be automated. Now, there are different takes on this. I just spoke to one of the previous guests on the podcast, Simon Fishman. He used to be at Expedia, now the SVP of revenue management at Sixth, one of the biggest car rental companies in the world. And uh, he brought this example of Elon Musk just announced that next year he will have a fully autonomous car. Yeah, and he's been doing this every year since twenty fourteen. Yeah. So, so uh, there's one trend that yes, p- things are getting automated. At the same time, it's almost like it's always getting pushed out. I can attest to this personally when I entered into sales specifically in twenty fourteen. Sales was already like dying officially. So yeah. it's like, oh, everything will be done through chatbots and digital and whatever. And not only did not happen, the exact opposite has happened because Mm -hmm. genuine personal interaction has never been as valuable as today. So interestingly enough, there was this counterintuitive development in the trend, which everyone missed and created the exact opposite scenario. So how do you see this? I mean, if you can just look at your crystal ball based on your experience, uh, where do you think this is going and how can data scientists future-proof their careers?
1: I think there's an element of truth in that, right? In that, you know, we're going back seven years ago and I wanted to build some type of model. I guess the linear regression, I'm, I'm well, not linear regression, if I go, but like say, say, decision tree, I'm in R hand coding everything, right? And now I can sit there and jump into an Azure ML or whatever and set up a workflow and not just do a decision tree, do a whole bunch of models at once and do ensemble modeling, blah, 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 and push go, right? Which has made it, you know, the necessity to have a very highly, like technically skilled person who's a deep coder, everything else. Um, you don't need as many of them on what you have to because again, it's gotten so much easier to do all that. But on the other hand, though, the demand has blown up so much, right. And the, the ability to actually do stuff's blown up so much. Yeah, sure. It's probably okay to spend four months coding a model by hand 10 years ago. Because it would take six months to implement it. Right. Um, so I'm maybe be doing two of these a year. And that's all the demand the business has because that's as fast as they can go. But now, when you've got you know APIs building stuff right in the middle layer, hitting models you know in real time, I can do hundreds of things at once, right? So the demand for modeling data solutions is just ramping up high, quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker. And these, for now, the ability to make this modeling easier through these automated tools, things like that. Um, you are able to just do more, right? I don't think you're going to have, it's, it's not to worry about kind of being edge off from automation. I do think, what I do. I actually kind of think it's a bit of an opposite problem in that what I'd worry about is it becomes easier and you have people who don't have the theory, who don't have, you know, the rigor in place to have access to these tools, who get into it and they start pushing stuff through, right? That's what's more dangerous to me. I, I think the future-proofing part, the thing that would makes a trained data professional so valuable, it's the technical skills are great. All oh, that's awesome. But you know, and we're talking, we're not even talking about social stuff right now. We're still talking the quant side is that you've got the rigor training. You know, what a good modeling solution is. You know, what accuracy looks like. I mean, I've got examples in my past where it's like, somebody's from a data science team and they come up and they show like a, an aggregated chart with 10 data points on it from their model. They're like, Oh, we have a 0.98 R squared. We're great. This is like perfect. Well, no, because once you actually unpack it and look at the individual kind of scoring, your AUC is like 0.58 or something, right? Um, but again, they didn't they didn't know that, and but they had the tools in place. These tools are really easy to use. They're able to do all this stuff, and they were positioned in the business in such a way they could go to a C suite officer again, the buy into how great the solution was, and it goes out into the business, right? You know, I you know that's kind of stuff you see when. You have these tools readily available for people who are less trained so you know i don't think we have a problem in the short term or in the midterm about folks jobs going away from automation um what i do think is you know we actually have a risk of two people jumping on who, who are who aren't quite ready i would say though in terms of future proofing the floor for what's good is constantly getting higher i mean again i started 12 years ago right and i was the top tier dude because i knew stats and i could write sql and i could do some crazy stuff in the access database and now my new hires coming right out of grad school are just like blowing everybody else out of the water, right? They, and this, we're not even talking about data scientists, we're talking about people with like a, a bachelor's in analytics, right? who are sitting there doing like HD boost modeling and, and they have the quantitative you know, mindsets in place and from frameworks in place where they're teaching me stuff, right? So that is probably the bigger risk for the future proofing is making sure you take it, you, you stay on top of um, the, the skills acceleration because, again, these tools get easier. It's easy to learn all the techniques and tools because you don't have to learn all the deep coding, right? That's one thing i got to keep an eye out for. The other opportunity, though, is do what I did and realize you're never gonna up, going to catch up. Let's go into leadership, <laughs> right? Because I don't do anything. I just talk to people. Um, all my staff actually do stuff. So, you know, that's a point where if you're looking to the future start asking yourself, do you want to move into leadership? Do you want to move into kind of the bigger picture stuff? Or do you want to be the best kind of solution developer or analyst you can be? There's no bad answer here, right? It's just something where you kind of want to figure out what's going to work for you in the future, where you're more interested in, and you devote your time accordingly. You know, I've kept up on some skills-wise, but, like, again, I'm not. I'm nowhere near my, like, 24-year-old new hire, right? So it's it's something where, you know, take both sides of that.
0: Got it. Well, Josh, this has been amazing, and I know that we will soon have to land the plane just because we're short on time, but there's just so much more to talk about. Uh, What I would like to uh, hear is uh, maybe now that you look to the future, the the decade of data is upon us. And it will open up all these opportunities. What are you most excited about? And maybe if you want, you can even talk about something that you guys are working on over at Comcast. Uh, maybe something that's a trend in the industry that you really you know guess your juices flowing and look with hope to the future.
1: I mean, I'm just excited to see kind of, you know um, organizations and companies like ours, which did not start out as a tech company, did not start out kind of purely data driven make that transition. Right. It's so exciting to see this evolution of, you know, like top down gut feeling decision-making to like really embedding all this decisioning at every single decision. Right. At everything touches every customer. That's exciting. Because especially in a job like mine, where, you know, I'm a, or even a Comcast, I've, I've been a Comcast customer most of my life. My parents are Comcast customers, all my friends are, you know, and it's something where it's like, we're starting to see how we're materially changing people's lives, with the work we're doing. We see it, right? We see it out there. And it's just so exciting that like, as this transformation and change accelerates, more and more of that impact is getting out there. More and more of these kind of material life changes are being made by the work we do. I mean, again, as a historical analyst, like I used to talk about, I used to know, just know stuff, right? My, I was good because I knew stuff. Like people would ask me questions, I could answer them. And now we're pivoting to a world where like, we're not just knowing stuff, we're actually being key change drivers in and ourselves in the day of profession. That is just such a cool, exciting development for me, for the company, for my staff, and like really for everybody in this profession.
0: Okay, fantastic. Well, look, this was a very informative and uh, insanely entertaining as well. So <laughs> so, 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 thanks very much for sharing your insights. Uh, hopefully we can actually uh, see you maybe presenting a short uh, thought leadership piece uh, on the platform as well, because just based on this conversation, I think you had like so many good war stories uh, that will be worth unpacking. So thank you very much for coming on the show oh. and, uh, and we look forward to working with you in the future.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I um, hope I didn't ramble too much.
0: I don't know. That's why we were on the call. And uh, and I think it, it was the best kind. It was the best kind of rambling with a lot of actionable insights. So thanks very much for that.
1: Thanks for having me. Have a good day.